Welcome to the Programmatic Digest podcast, the discussion of your weekly roundups on top programmatic and digital news with other programmatic ninjas and experts. I'm your host, Ellen Parker, your very own programmatic sensei. You'll find everything we discussed today, including expert information, show notes, and all referred articles on our website, programmaticdigest.com. In the Sunset's Corner this week, we welcome Rob Brill. Robert is the founder and CEO of BrillMedia.co. Prior, Robert held senior leadership position for agencies in Los Angeles and New York and has developed programmatic solutions since 2010. Brill Media takes a stand for the advertising agencies, companies, and entrepreneurs who propel their businesses through advanced advertising and marketing practices. Welcome to the Sunset's Corner, Rob. We're so excited to have you. Thanks for having me, Helene. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> we'll cover about four to almost five articles today. All will be kind of centered about the latest in the programmatic world, including some browsers, privacy, pri- consumer privacy as well, and then the latest deal between Amazon and Trade Desk. Exciting. So our first stop is the article from Shoshana Wodinski in Adweek called... Despite its risky reputation, in-app advertising is more popular than ever. Pubmatic, which released its second quarterly mobile index a few days ago, found that advertisers increasingly turning towards private marketplace or PMPs to make their buys across apps in and the mobile web. The mobile web. The in-app open market is festered with fraudulent inventory, lack of true measurement, to be honest, including accidental clicks and even more. In 2018, report from fraud intelligence company Pixelate found that app-based inventory had the highest concentration of invalid traffic, with roughly one in five of these ads serving up serving up in impression to bots and bad actors. So, Rob, first, what's your point of view on this this topic? Do you think an app PMPs is the way to go if we want to consider like strategies including mobile-focused or in-app-focused inventory? Yeah, no, I think this entire marketplace is is dependent on trust and relationships. I mean, 16 years ago when I got into the business, uh, the the primary transaction method was uh, human-to-human contact, and certainly we've evolved since then. But I think the fundamentals remain the same. Um, It's important for us to vet inventory. It's important for us to deploy uh, and marketers to deploy uh, brand safety tools and to constantly... Uh, scrutinize the data that flows into their into their marketplace, into their into into their platforms. You know, I think I'm, I'm not as concerned with app problems because there's problems everywhere. The, the entire marketplace is filled with problems, and a really smart marketer is going to assume that most of what they do and how they act should be focused on uh, finding the right data, uh, trusting and verifying, and ensuring that uh, we're doing right by our clients. So. Today, it's in-app inventory. Tomorrow, it's going to be something else. The ethos, the general way of being, the, the way that we operate our business is really designed to um, mitigate I these challenges. I think you bring a good point that ultimately, it, it is just one of the many problems we're facing. I mean, I had Anna Milicevic on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. and we So we do have a, a bigger problem here. So it's not only the in-app inventory, it's pretty much inventory everywhere. And part of the conversation they had for the Adweeks, uh, at the Adweeks Next Tech conference was we're starting to kind of cut down certain partners that are not 
providing transparency, providing exactly how we are being taxed, how we're, we're pricing our inventory. I, I do think that in-app is very essential when you're to be part of your programmatic buy, but there's always that love-hate situation, <laughs> like that love-hate situation where you don't know, oh man, in-app is really prevalent to some of the, the targeted audience that we're trying to reach. However, I'm not sure if the inventory I'm trying to target here is where I want it to be. I mean, I would rather not target in-app inventory because I'm not sure and I don't trust that partner, like you mentioned, is trust, versus just testing it. And then next thing you know, the results are completely off. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Um, I, I think a good marketer um, alerts their client to the, the top line challenges that they may be facing in the campaign. Um Without, without scaring the client, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, uh, our, our performance is generally just judged on whether we're hitting the KPIs that the client needs to make. And it's a balance of doing right by the client uh, and also not scaring them into not wanting to run any advertising because that doesn't help their, ad, you know, their business either. So I think the way we, the way we avoid any... Uh, unpredictable elements of our business is we're upfront and communicative with our client, and we do a lot of preemptive and 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 post you know post launch work and optimization to sort out and identify the bad actors and identify where we feel comfortable with the performance we're getting. And if the performance is too good to be true, we, we often just. Yeah. And also we have some great partners out there now that helps with that, um, you know, just matching and filtering out some of that bad, bad inventory coming in. Absolutely. So I'm going to move on to the next article, the next two articles, which goes hand in hand. It's, um, it's actually based on a podcast from the ad exchanger. Uh, it's called The Big Story. And this one, it was the, this particular episode was called Targeting Targeted. <laughs> so basically, I strongly recommend everyone to listen to it. It was very, I'm going to say it was very uh, acronyms focused because they were talking and giving us an update about the new Google Chrome updates and privacy updates that Google is proposing to add in. So just to recap some of the Google updates um, for consumers, Google proposed more prominent opt-outs and controls at the browser, website, and ecosystem level. So the company shared uh, some mock-ups that explained to, to users what data is being collected, who is collecting that data, and what pieces of data led to showing of a particular ad, for instance. There was also like an option to block those ads. So some of the conversation during the episode was the comparison between both Apple and Mozilla restricting the ability to target on their respective browsers, and it's forcing Google's hand with Chrome. Um, so there's there's a lot to cover here. First, the fact that more and more the browsers are implementing consumer-focused fo privacy, giving the consumer the basically the upper hand in terms of how their data is being used by that browser and how it's being used by the browser's partners. And, um, and also just the rivalry between the browsers here. <laughs> you know, Apple never gave out some of this data for, for a very long time. And then Firefox, about a year ago, announced some of the, the options to consumer privacy, implementing consumer privacy within the browser. 
how, what's your point of view with, with all of what I just mentioned? First, privacy, consumer privacy is within the browsers, but also those browsers' rivalry. I, I've been in this business and I've seen the evolution of the way people communicate from, I, I, when I got into this business, uh, uh, Friendster was the social network and then MySpace and then Facebook, Ooh, et You're taking it way back. <laughs> taking it way back. It was when I, my very first job was at Universal Music and we were doing, um, it was called guerrilla marketing, but really it was so, it came to be known as social media, like posting and content and forums. It's, it, that's what it was. They just didn't have the words for it yet. And what I've, what I've noticed through this business with the, with all but like nine months of my career being on the agency side is, um, Agencies are really good at using existing technologies and capabilities and making them work for clients. And every now and again, when you work with a massive agency, they might invest in some tools that connect different finance platforms or have, you know, one or two sets of data that are proprietary because they can buy it. Right. But like 85, 95% of the capabilities that exist in the marketplace, if you have um, scale, we, we deploy. Right. So that's that's our value proposition. Right. Um, making available programmatic capabilities to clients who primarily wouldn't have access to them. And the general ethos is that we use the, the tools that are available in the marketplace and deploy them in, in, with, with expertise. So I'm not particularly worried about this because if data, consumer data goes away or becomes less, um, less specific or if we have to re rely on contextual targeting – the, the entire marketplace is going to rely on contextual Ooh, I targeting. love the fact that you brought that in because that was going to be some of my question. What do you, th what's your sense on contextual? Yeah, I love contextual. I think contextual is really interesting because there's abundance of inventory and in certain situations it works really well. It doesn't always work well. Um, we rely, like I remember in 2011 to 2013, the use of third-party data was almost like a bad word because so many people said it didn't work and then all of a sudden it shifted and became really valuable. And so I think like like there's like every year to year and a half there's um there's an apocalypse moment. It's the end of something, something's gonna go away, it's gonna forever kill television, it's gonna forever kill RTV, it's gonna forever kill something. Like newspapers still exist. Television still exists. Like there's not going to be a, a thing that's going to kill the momentum of programmatic. It might change. It might look different, but the entire marketplace is going to have an equal playing, playing field. So our job is to use the technologies that are available and to ensure that our clients get the best access to the best data, the best inventory, the best thinking about how to use the tools that are available in the market. Very interesting that you brought up contextual because few, I think it was a few weeks ago, I covered an article where from the Washington Post that is not creating or in the process of creating or have created Zeus, the platform. And basically it's like contextual targeting on steroids. And within the article, it was just outlining how, well, we've been gathering how, People have been behaving on our website or some news website contextually and just gathering that data. And with the the technology that they have now, the Zeus platform is just enhancing that data. And so we're now, it's almost giving, they call it a cookie-less option for this industry. I find it very interesting because you're right. We have solely operated 
actually strongly operated on third-party data. And we did get super excited a few years, like up, I think it was only three years ago where big data was everywhere. Like we want all the data. Now we're all talking about, no, we don't want all the data. We just want relevant data. We just want to make sure we're not targeting bots. We just want to make sure that we're priced the right way. And that, as you mentioned earlier, we're delivering to the KPIs that we're sold on or whatnot. I don't know if we're ever going to go towards like a cookie-less industry, (laughs) but seeing some of those browsers removing the ability to, even Apple removing the ability to to report on conversion or attribution, excuse me, that's that's like a major. It's just like we operate off of like measurement key key KPIs that show some level of attribution. I mean, the trade desk is excellent with proving attribution, so. I don't know if, do you think this is like a projection to like two years from now? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm not scared of it. Like there's so many people, like, I think, I think the underlying current of the, of those conversations that it's scary and it doesn't scare me because it's like VHS versus Betamax. Like I'm not in the, I'm not interested in predicting if it's going to be VHS or Betamax. What I'm interested in is using the best technology that's available in the marketplace to arbitrage uh, attention for our clients, right? That's what I'm interested in. If it's ba- if it's VHS, cool. If it's Betamax, cool. Whatever the case is, and, and in that case, we certainly know what the winner was. It was VHS. So I'm not in. I'm not. I'm not worried. I'm more just monitoring and paying attention to the the trends that are happening in the marketplace. So like, if if we have trouble tracking on Safari, for example, uh, we're we're for probably for a lot of our campaigns blocking you know, access to inventory on Safari. Like those types of changes are, are critical for us. When Facebook makes changes the uh, the visual format of their of their in in uh, their mobile newsfeed ads, that's what we pay attention to and 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 we look at trends in, in that perspective. But macro trends that shape the industry, we'll take it as it comes. Right. We're just uh it's just like if Google has an update, we just take it as it comes and assume <laughs> assume sure. it. All right, because you can't spend your time worrying. Like it doesn't, it doesn't help anyone to worry. It it it's much more valuable for our clients if we prepare, and we know we know what's what's happening in the marketplace, and we prepare for solutions for the possible eventualities. Okay, that makes sense. Good point. Good point. Um, our next article is also from the ad exchanger from James Hersher this time. Amazon's deal with the trade desk and data zoo brings RTV to CTV, brings real-time bidding to connected TV. So just to recap this hard article here very high levelly, the partnerships enables buyers on the trade desk and data zoo and Amazon's own DSP to access Fire TV impression exclusively through a private marketplace in the US. And it was developed by Amazon Publisher Services, APS. So the sell-side technology group that also operates, that's the sell-side technology group that also operates Amazon's head of bidding product. So the article highlighted a lot about um, where we stand in the whole CTV world, in the whole programmatic TV world at this time. I professionally am excited about this major move, being able to target Amazon's uh, Fire TV, being able to target Fire TV <laughs> inventory through like a, a DSP, like the Trade Desk and Data Zoo. It's pretty exciting yeah. to me, but what's your take on it? What do you think? Generally, we yeah. love connected television. <clears throat> I mean, I think I think there's, um, I, I haven't done this, but I, 
so we bought we buy connected television for our clients. But what I think is interesting that I haven't been able to deploy is I think there's a full on business model where you can redefine what it means to be a marketing agency. And, and specifically, I've been trying to like find the right partner to um, basically go into the marketplace, sell the capabilities around connected television, digital out of home, digital audio, maybe some hyper local, like package that stuff up and hit the ground with every mom and pop retailer that you see in a city. You could, I think there's an opportunity to, to hire like hire a hundred, you know, salespeople and have them hit the ground and they can sell these packages. And it's, and I think to the right customer, to the right local or, you know, small or mid-sized advertiser, it will be mind blowing with the ability to deploy localized ads on Amazon Fire or uh, Pluto TV or Roku, whatever the case might be. Like that's functionality that I think for most small and mid-sized businesses, they they don't even like they don't even they don't understand how it works. A lot of them, and they don't actually think that it's even in the realm of possibility for them to advertise because they don't know how to make it happen. I think there's a whole new business model which that predicates itself around development of cre- creative uh, and deployment of these uh, uh, cross-channel media solutions. And if, you know, if I had the, the ability, I would do that myself, but we, we're always looking for partners to kind of like do the selling part and we do the, uh, the media activation. It could be a massive business. Right. I, th- I definitely like that. That's a def- different perspective. And the reason why I'm excited about this deal also, and that might be taking it a little bit more deeper in details, but I know that the Tradesk has been diversifying their internal um, tactic mix. So being able to now not only target connected TV inventory on something like Fire TV, um, which the traders had connected TV before that, but Fire TV is definitely one of the leading um, streaming devices in the US. I'm more excited about the the outcome, the opportunity to optimize, the opportunity to understand the data from this TV viewer actually is tracked on this tactics and we'll be able to now pull a deeper level of attribution away from the you know the TV metrics now we'll be able to to even understand recency frequency understand some level of the geographic um uh you know where they're they're located in the US how long they're viewed if that's those type of metrics I I am more excited to to see. And that's not to say that we didn't have the metrics availability before we did to some extent, but having it available within one platform help us really build that attribution funnel. I know it's going to sound cliche, but that helps us tell the story in that <laughs> in the, the final month uh, reporting or in that quarterly reporting, really being able to understand the audience to the next level, adding it as a person persona trace. That's the exciting thing for me. Um, I think as a programmatic media buyer, the biggest frustration is not being able to build that attribution funnel to help me optimize correctly the actual tactic I'm doing or even testing new tactic because I don't know, I have no way to really you know, bring everything back together, basically. And I think what the trade desk is allowing us to do is continuing adding those partners within that that um that platform to allow us to really diversify our tactic mix when we're we're just 
executing the buy. So that's that's really cool to me. I haven't tested it that yet, but I, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I mean, I think you know when we pair, when we pair up connected television ads, we make it local. You know, we target you know users in ten zip codes who are high value, where, where a lot of high value customers live. And then you remarket to them. You you test that whole user base uh, tied back to um, to a, a, an on site conversion. It it fundamentally changes the nature of what digital advertising is. And right now, with the exception of print, digital advertising is is everything but print, <laughs> which is kind of amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. That's a good way to look at it. So moving on to our final article from AdExchanger also. Omnicom jumps on LinkedIn audience API for platform data it can use, it can actually use. So we've seen a lot of uh, the holding companies or the big agencies or the big data partners just buying either a smaller data partner or partnering with a with a technology and like an ad tech or martech in the past. But the reason why I really wanted your point of view on this one is because it's so focused on B2B data. So just to recap the article that days after LinkedIn announced its audience engagement API, Omnicom has released a product built around it, an analytics tool called professional audiences. So the LinkedIn API returns aggregate level audiences data A reach for For example, executives in the creative production industry doesn't return a list of targetable individuals. It returns a list of trending topics, publishers, news stories, cities, and other features that index highly for that audience. So this is, I think it's a pretty cool, I really want to hear more about what you think, because I know how you feel about contextual, but this is specifically about the B2B world. How likely are you to this? You know, this this looks a lot like I think the Twitter API and, and the ability to scrub, you know, in Twitter real time conversations and uh, identify a zeitgeist. And with regard to LinkedIn, I think it's like it kind of just feels like there's a lot of um, momentum that LinkedIn has, both with you know, LinkedIn in, in some respects feels like Facebook from a couple of years ago in terms of like the reach you're getting, the organic push you get on content. It makes sense to me that they're opening up their API and and adding professional capabilities on top of their data. I think it's super interesting. Now, the question is, when is that, how much of that data is going to be available and and what kind of tools you need to access it? From what Analect is doing, um, I think it makes a lot of sense to define indices. Um, I think you want to define insights. Um, What, you know, I, I guess to your point, the tool will help advertisers understand uh, the things that, you know, creative services people are talking about. I think that's very, that's very interesting. It's good and it can help drive overarching insights for a campaign. So I, I would want that tool available outside I, of that. I absolutely agree with you. And, and another thing just popped up into my head is that a couple of months ago, I was ran, running a B2B campaign. So they were targeting event planners and it was a a convention center in a city basically those conven- the convention city the goal was just to attract some of those uh, event planners to plan for next year's conference next year school meet sports events so it was very focused into like an event planner it was very hard to find specific data to this 
to this campaign. And so we did try some third party data. We did test even, um, you know, some LinkedIn targeting. However, some of the best tactic that converted really well. And when I say converted, it's like that submission of a form that said, I'm interested or give me a call or downloading a little bit more information that was specific to those planners. One of the best performing tactic was partnering directly with a publisher and part of the partnership was for the publisher to have, you know, the typical banner on their homepage, but a sponsored content. If that's anything like what LinkedIn is trying to give us the type of inf- that type of data, then I would definitely want to use it for any type of B2B because the event planners were more engaged after reading like a 400 or 500 word blog about why that particular conference, I mean, the particular convention was an amazing place for your next conference or your next um, professional meet and in this amazing city and blah, blah, blah. And we saw literally, I can't remember the, the, the conversion rate, but I ended up moving LinkedIn budget into, the, into that direct publisher because it was, it was performing so much better. Yeah, I mean, I think direct publisher trade publications do really well for B2B advertisers. I think at the very least, you want to test it. You know, for the B2B campaigns that we run, it's a variety of site whitelists. We'll turn on private marketplaces. We'll do some digital out of home, depending on what the KPIs are. I think the challenge with LinkedIn is that it's it, it if you if you have the right if your audience is aligned with the type of business that you're look that you're you're, you're you're marketing, I think LinkedIn can be very powerful. I think where it falls off is if is if your audience is too broad. It's a little difficult to hone in. Like for example, if I'm targeting VPs in in an industry. VPs in an industry may not be, maybe my buyers, ten, only 10% of them are going to be my buyers. So how, like the tool, the data to hone in right on those 10% really isn't there. It would be really valuable and interesting to be able to buy LinkedIn's third-party data elsewhere. And I, I would have to check if that's even available. I think it is some elements of B2B data are available, but I would really love to see LinkedIn's tool integrate with other third-party data. It would be very interesting for us to you know, deploy. I agree with you. I would want to see, I would want to be able to buy LinkedIn data elsewhere. Right now, the only way to do it is via private deals, like um, via PMPs. Like you can't really buy their their data directly, like what Amazon is doing to the traders. But yeah, I definitely agree with that. Cool. So now let's move on to the next segment where we like to shine our diversity light. Do you have an example or anyone in mind that's done diversity, either an agency, a brand, a creative, or anything related that's done diversity right or wrong? I'll give you a fantastic example. One of, um, there's a, a, a woman on our team who um, I believe, I don't know, like we never discussed this, but just, I think she, she has Persian uh descent in her in her family she was like we're, we're running a campaign for uh, a, an ice cream brand the brand wanted to run pistachio like to promote their pistachio brand client says okay where, what should our recommendation be like where should we target like they had some ideas about where but we want to hone it down and she was like i got this she was like there's a big persian i i think persian i could be wrong but just, like persian um community 
like in some, I forgot where, Dearborn, Michigan, maybe, I don't recall where. And she was like, that ad, that product is going to kill it. Why? Because the Persians love pistachios. And I was like, holy cow, that, that, that wouldn't have occurred to me because it's true. Like I've totally eaten some fantastic Persian food and it's and the sweets are like, you know, uh, uh, up pistachios and they're like, there's incredible food, but I never would have put the two and two together. So, I mean, that's just, that's just happenstance. I think that's critically important, right? If you have a, a bunch of professionals are good, having people who are, have the same exact experience and, and life experiences might limit your diversity of knowledge uh, and cultural, cultural relationship to the rest of the world might be a little um, similar across the organization. I think actually one of the things that's probably the most critical thing for us is not diversity of uh, ethnicity or gender, but we, we have that just because of the people we've hired who are fantastic, who happen to be a diverse group of people. What's actually the thing that's interesting to me is emotional IQ. So diversity from the perspective of we need people within our organization who have strong emotional IQ. Because I'll tell you, I do not have emotional IQ. I have technical knowledge and have a very direct way of talking to people. But when it comes to emotional IQ, I actually hired our, um, our director of client services. Uh, his name is Tony Price, a uh, person I've known for probably 20 years now, third time I've hired him. He's a fantastic professional. Um, and he has incredibly valuable, high emotional IQ. So when we think about diversity, we're actually thinking about how do we do things so that we have the, the empathic, the empathy to make things happen within our organization. And I think that's, from a diversity standpoint, something that I desperately needed within my organization that I found in someone like, like Tony Price. That's awesome. Thank you very much for sharing. That's a very interesting perspective. So in closing, do you mind sharing three fun facts about yourself in less than 20 seconds? Uh, okay. I have a, a food account called Dude Let's Eat. You go to Instagram, Dude Let's Eat, got 14,000 followers. Nice. I take photos of food. <laughs> that is awesome. I'll make sure to link that uh, into the show notes for people. Yeah, it's two T's, Dude Let's Eat. Okay. I don't have another fun fact. I'm not that fun. Uh, what's what's great is I have a beautiful seven month old baby boy named Henry. He is the light of my life. He's gorgeous and smiling and so happy. Um, Congratulations! And thank you. And then the last thing is fun fact. I'll I'll do a little bit of um, self bragging. Uh, we we were just um, ranked number one fifty five on the. Inc. 5000, uh, fastest growing comp- private companies in America. That's happens to be what, what's on my mind. Yay. Just that, is, that is exciting. Congratulations. That's definitely something cool. to brag about and to celebrate. You have to celebrate Thanks. the wins, the small and the big ones. <laughs> it, it is. It's a reflection of our exactly. team and the hard work and the process. Like it's, they, They're doing an incredible And that's amazing. And lastly, any parting advice for any freshman ninjas getting into the industry? Maybe like quick to-dos or don'ts, a tip that you learn along the way? Yeah, I think this is much more macro, which is um, the, I found that the industry changes every one to two years. There's like a big thing that happens, like 
social media became a thing, uh, mobile became a thing, uh, programmatic became a thing, hyperlocal became a thing. And you look at those, they're, they're, they're every, maybe not two years, maybe three to four years. But at every step of the way, whenever those big things happen, you've got to, le- there's an opportunity to level up. And that's how I leveled up. And um, specifically when programmatic became a thing, like that's when, when I had a big level up and I, and I grasped that opportunity and, and had the right leadership to be able to grow something interesting there. Um, that's on the macro level. So position yourself. On the micro level, um, I pay attention to things when I hear them three times. Like when I hear people asking me about them or I read about it or whatever, it could be the same day, same week, same month. And that's when I an alarm bell goes off like, okay, this is something I got to pay attention to. And the last thing is iteration. Like our entire business is focused on um, iteration. So everything I think that a person does in life has the opportunity to be iterated upon. It's not important to get it right the first time, although it's nice. What's more important is, you know, the stick-to-itiveness. Get Get it done eventually and iterate and do the best job you can with the information and knowledge you have at the time. And don't stop iterating and refining the process or the thing that you're working on. So adapt and get things done and continue to grow. Yes. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. We had a lot of fun. That that was great insight. Congratulations again. Cool. We're super excited to have you. Thanks, Aline. Talk to you soon. Again, you'll find everything we've discussed today, including Rob's information and all referred articles in our show notes on our website, programmaticdigest.com. Please take a few minutes to leave us a review wherever you're streaming this podcast and share with anyone you know can benefit from it. In conclusion, fam, we're all humans working in the fast advancing industry. So as a reminder, we're not saving lives. At the end of the day, our mission on this podcast is to share knowledge, highlight diversity, and educate ourselves as we build this community of programmatic ninjas or families, as we would say in my African culture. Stay confident.